So this week's Torah portion is Parshat Bo, and Zev's going to talk a lot about it tomorrow, and I'm not going to, I think, talk about any of the things that he's talking about. Um, but it contains a fascinating moment in the unfolding story of the plagues that should, I think, make us stop and take notice, particularly with the headlines of the day. Seven plagues at this point have struck Egypt, and the people are suffering. Several times, Pharaoh seems to soften only to harden his heart again, and it's during the seventh plague, hail, that he even seems to admit his mistake. Quoting from the text, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, and he says, this time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. But as soon as the plague is over, he changes his mind. He and his officials, says the Torah, harden their hearts. <clears throat> and now Moses and Aaron have they've come to warn Pharaoh of further plagues, potentially devastating. A plague of locusts that they say will devour all the grain left after the hail, as well as all the fruit from the trees. And for the first time in Torah, in this, in this you know, narrative, this story of Moses and Pharaoh and the Israelites, we hear something that we haven't heard before. Pharaoh's own advisors now tell him that he is making a mistake, like a bolt, like a ton of lightning. You put those two words together, figure out where I'm going. Bolt and ton. There you go. Um, Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go. Let the Israelites go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is to be ruined? It's a powerful moment. It should be, in this story, a tipping point. Pharaoh's advisors, who to this point have been willing participants in his folly and his eagle maniacal rule, are now speaking truth to power. Potentially, a great, at great personal risk as they openly challenge Pharaoh's grasp of what is happening all around them. And these words, they should immediately transform the situation. If people that you trust to give you advice, give you advice wholeheartedly, with honesty, you would think you would listen. But they don't. It doesn't change the situation. Pharaoh's ego, his hubris, his narcissism, blind him to the sound advice of those that have the greater interest of the nation and not the Pharaoh as their chief concern. <clears throat> Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in his commentary on this Parsha, which I will say serves as a strong basis for the drosh I'm sharing with you tonight, he connects this to uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Barbara Tuxman's famous book, The March of Folly. For those that have not read this incredible novel, it chronicles a comprehensive array of examples of leaders who make bad choices in pursuing foolish goals. From Montezuma's senseless surrender of his empire in 1520 to Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. And in her book, Tuckman defines folly as the pursuit by government of policies contrary to their own interests, despite the availability of feasible alternatives. The core thesis of her book asks this great question. How is it that throughout history, intelligent people have made foolish decisions that were so damaging both to their own position and to that of their people that they led? And by this, she did not mean decisions that, in retrospect, proved to be wrong, 
Anyone can make that kind of mistake. I do it all the time. That's the nature of leadership and the nature of life itself. We are called on to make decisions under conditions of uncertainty all the time. And with the wisdom of hindsight, we can see where we went wrong because of factors we did not know about at the time. But that's not the kind of decisions that she's talking about. What she was talking about were decisions that people could see at the time were the wrong ones, that they were warned, there were warning signs, and they ignored them. For Tuckman, folly begins with the most fundamental of things, an outsized and self-destructed will for power. Both the governors and the governed can overreach, she says, becoming convinced of their own correctness and their own righteousness. Quoting her, chief among the forces affecting political folly is lust for power, named by Tacitus as the, quote, most flagrant of all passions. Tuckman continues, because it can only be satisfied by power over others, government is its favorite field of exercise or what she calls the paramount area of folly, because it is there that men and women seek power over others, only to lose it over themselves. And it's in this light that today's political headlines and drama are not something new under the sun, but another chapter in the oldest of human dramas. The tension between appetite and the common good, the tension between ambition and common sense. One of the examples she gives and that Rabbi Sachs connects to this Parsha is of the wooden horse of the story of Troy. The Greeks had laid siege to Troy unsuccessfully for 10 years. Eventually, they appeared to give up, if you remember the story, and they sail away, leaving behind this giant wooden horse. The Trojans think it's a gift and enthusiastically haul it into their city as a symbol of their victory. As we know, inside the horse were 30 Greek soldiers who that night under the cover of darkness came out of hiding, snuck out of the horse, went to the city gates and opened them to allow the entire Greek army to come in who had sailed back under the cover of night. It was a brilliant ploy, probably not one you could ever use again, but worked the first time. But the Trojan priest had guessed that this was the plot. He said and warned the people, don't take that horse. And in the famous words, he said, I fear the Greeks even when they come bearing gifts. That's where that phrase comes from, fearing those who come bearing gifts. His warning was ignored, and Troy fell. Rabbi Sachs urges us to read the story of Pharaoh in this week's Parsha and of his advisors in this context. He sees it as one of the first recorded instances of this march of folly. But how does it happen? One lens is to look at Pharaoh not as an evil man, but as a deeply conservative one, a fearful one, one charged with maintaining what was already the longest-lived empire of the ancient world and not allowing it, as it were, to be undermined by change, wanting to keep it great again. Let slaves go free, and who knows what will happen next? Royal authority will seem to have been defeated. A, a fracture could appear in the political structure. The seemingly unshakable edifice of power will be seen to have been shaken. And that, for those who fear change, is the beginning of the end. 
Under those circumstances, it is possible to see why Pharaoh would refuse to listen to his advisors. They are weak. They're defeatists, giving in to pressure. And any sign of weakness in leadership only leads to more pressure and more capitulation. It's better to be strong, to continue to say no, no matter what, and simply endure one more plague. We see Pharaoh both in this sense as wicked and also foolish, because we've read the book. We know how the story ends. His advisors who are experiencing all this in real time, they can see clearly what is taking place. They can see clearly that he is leading his people to a disaster. But he may well have felt that he was being strong, while they were merely being fearful and weak. Leadership is only easy, it's been my experience, and its error is only clearly visible in retrospect. Yet Pharaoh remains this enduring symbol of a failure to listen to one's own advisors. He could not see that the world had changed, that he was facing something new, that his enslavement of a people was no longer tolerable, that the old magic no longer worked, that the empire over which he was presiding was growing old, and that the more obstinate he became, the closer he was bringing his people to tragedy. Knowing how to listen to advice, how to respond to change, and when to admit you've got it wrong, they are, I think, the three of the most difficult tasks of not only being a leader, but of being a human being. Knowing how to listen to advice, how to respond to change, and knowing when to admit that you've got it wrong. Rejecting advice, refusing to change, refusing to admit you're wrong, they may look like strength to some, but usually they are the beginning of yet another march of folly. And it seems to me that there are a great deal, that there is a great deal of folly in our world today. People are just not listening to good advice, perhaps so much that it appears to some that we are marching in our folly off a cliff. Perhaps we can change course. Perhaps we can learn the lessons of history. Tuckman writes that history, like humanity, defies clinical categorization. That there are two ways in which that which came before can teach us lessons for today. One is to enable us to avoid past mistakes and to manage better in similar circumstances next time. And the other is to enable us to anticipate a future course of events. Tuckman wrote, to manage better next time is within our means. To anticipate does not seem to be beyond our comprehension. The Torah would add, lo he. It's not in the heavens. It's in the experiences that we are all having. It's in the good advice of friends and advisors, of confidants. That at least may be the beginning, the beginning of wisdom, and maybe the end of folly. Can you hear us so may it be God's will. Amen. Our service continues. Page 586 will rise for a later.